0: We've been talking about 40-ness for the last (laughs) 40-ness. Are you just turning 40? Is that you're laughing over there? It's not that kind of 40. Um, Wherever you find 40 in the Bible, almost everywhere you find 40 in the Bible, everywhere significant you find 40 in the Bible, it's a symbolic number. It's, uh, it's the product of five and eight, five meaning the number of initiation or the number of mankind, and eight being the number of rebirth. And you put those together, and what you have is a time of trial and testing or preparation for rebirth. And where you see 40 in the Bible, you always see it used in that way, whether it's Noah in the ark or Moses on the mountain, whether it's the Israelites in the wilderness or Jesus in the wilderness, that 40 is always about a preparation for a rebirth, a preparation into the next level of whatever is going on in a person's life or a nation's life. And so this Lent is a 40, 40 days of Lent was preparation for Easter, preparation for the new life of Easter, and we've really been trying to bring that home, we've been trying to practice that on our own to find a way of clearing the distractions, clearing the noise internally and externally that allows us to be able to see clearly what's right in front of us. The tragedy of Palm Sunday, Jesus said, was that the people missed the hour of their visitation. They saw what they wanted to see. They saw what they were conditioned to see, what they expected to see in him as he rode into Jerusalem, and they missed who he really was. All of the followers on Easter Sunday did not recognize Jesus the first time they saw him. Interesting little detail. Nobody recognized Jesus because they were looking for him among the dead and not among the living. And so this fortiness, this preparation, is about being able to see Jesus where Jesus is, among the living. And guess what? That's us. We're the living. If we can't find Jesus here, look around the room in these faces in these relationships, in every seemingly insignificant moment of our lives, then we're not going to find him at all. We talked about the fact we're looking for him in the clouds and he's on his haunches in the sand cooking breakfast. That's where Jesus is. He's right here. He's ground level. He's doing the seemingly insignificant things because that's where life is lived. And so this fortiness has all been about clearing away the distractions, preparing us to recognize the living Jesus as he is in our own lives. And then acting accordingly. What do you do with your moments when you're feeling that immense presence, when you're feeling that gratitude, when you're keyed in to the fact that Jesus, our Father, is present in every face? There's a, a story that I found that I just love. And I want to read it to you. It's called a letter from the post office. Our 14-year-old dog, Abby, died last month. The day after she passed away, my four-year-old daughter, Meredith, was crying and talking about how much she missed Abby. She asked if we could write a letter to God so that when Abby got to heaven, God would recognize her. I told her that I thought we could, so she dictated these words. Dear God... Will you please take care of my dog? Abby died yesterday and is with you in heaven. I miss her very much. I'm happy that you let me have her as my dog, even though she got sick. I hope you will play with her. She likes to swim and play with balls. I'm sending a picture of her, so when you see her, you will know that she is my dog. I really miss her. Love, Meredith." We put the letter in an envelope with a picture of Abby and Meredith, addressed it to God slash heaven. (laughs) And we put our return address on it, and Meredith pasted several stamps on the front of the envelope because she said it would take a lot of stamps to get the letter all the way to heaven. (laughs) And that afternoon, she dropped it into the letter box at the post office. A few days later, she asked if God had gotten the letter yet. I told her that I thought he had. Yesterday, there was a package wrapped in gold paper on our front porch addressed to Meredith in an unfamiliar hand. Meredith opened it. Inside was a book by Mr. Rogers called When a Pet Dies. Taped to the inside front cover was the letter we had written to God in its opened envelope. On the opposite page was the picture of Abby and Meredith and this note, Dear Meredith, Abby arrived safely in heaven. Having the picture was a big help, and I recognized her right away. Abby isn't sick anymore. Her spirit is here with me just like it stays in your heart. Abby loved being your dog. Since we don't need our bodies in heaven, I don't have any pockets to keep your picture in, so I'm sending it back to you in this little book for you to keep and have something to remember Abby by. Thank you for the beautiful letter, and thank your mother for helping you write it and sending it to me. What a wonderful mother you have. I picked her especially for you. I send my blessings every day and remember that I love you very much. By the way, I'm easy to find. I am wherever there is love. Love, God. We don't know who replied to Meredith, but there is a beautiful soul working in the dead letter department who understands love. Wow. How does a person know how to do this? I mean you're working in the dead letter office, you're working in the post office, transactional, stuff going by over and over and over again. What sparks you? What connects with you? What rockets out as significant in the sea of insignificance, in the sea of mindless work over and over? I don't know if this is true. If it's not true, it should be true. I'm going to say that it's true. I want it to be true. This is true. I was I was thinking of the scene of this. You know, remember in Miracle on 34th Street, uh, that yeah, he's going through all the and he finds the one to God at the courthouse. I I picture it just like that. You know, it's probably all automated and laser focused and but I'm picturing 1940s letters going by. But how does a person learn how to do this? Know what words to say? Be kicked into action, to spend the money, to take the time. Think of the creativity that was involved here. Each word was just perfect. Each thought to send back the letter, to send back the picture that they could keep because I'll tell you, 30 or 40 years later this is going to be something passed down from generation to generation. You can just see it happening. How does a person know how to do this? And knowing that they will, no one will ever know who they are. Cloaked in anonymity, never being thanked. But taking the time and spending the attention to do exactly this. Because it's not about the magnitude of the act, it's about the condition of the heart. What did uh, Mother Teresa say? You know, in this life we cannot do great things, we can only do small things with great love. That's what this is about. To be able to see God in the dead letter office, that's kingdom. That's what's going on here. And that's what we're trying to find for ourselves, how all this happens. This is where we've been driving all Lent, trying to get to the place that we can see God in the most insignificant places, places that we would not look, but realize that's exactly where he is, to see Jesus, to see the Father, to see love, to see what love requires in any given moment, here and now among the living, or not at all. This is where we're headed. And the fortyness of Lent, this period, is what is preparing us to be able to recognize Jesus, to recognize the hour of our visitation. But that's not the whole story. We're not done if we can just do that. We just finished counting Lent right up to last Sunday, to Easter. Did you know that we're counting again? Did you know we're in the middle of another count? This time it's to 49 instead of 40. And the following day is added also, day 50, which is Pentecost. We're heading into this season of Pentecost. And why is this significant? If you take the longest view of Scripture, the most wide-open view of Scripture, Scripture is pointing us and is illustrating the shape of our journeys. Each one of our individual journeys is illustrated in the shape of Scripture at large, if we read it correctly. Scripture treats Israel, Old Testament, as a single person. Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son, quoting God. Son being, being the nation of Israel, as if it were one person. Being called out of, Isra- out of Egypt is to be called out of slavery, to be called out of death, to be called out of that kind of mindless servitude. And so we have Pesach, Passover which celebrates the physical liberation of the people, their exodus out of Egypt, exodus out of that slavery and that death that they were facing there for hundreds of years. But that's not the end of the story because the next major festival is Shavuot, or the Festival of Weeks. We call it Pentecost. And this celebrates the spiritual liberation of the people. They celebrate the giving of the law because the giving of the law at that point was the start of a new culture for them. Out of the slavery, out of the servitude of Egypt, into a new culture, into a new government, into a new relationship with God, an altered relationship with God, one that would change them and change the direction of their, their nation forever. Pesach, Passover, celebrates the physical liberation. Shavuot, weeks celebrates the spiritual liberation, and in between the two is the counting of the Omer. Omer, what's that? Well, it could be translated just a, a sheaf, a sheaf of wheat. Any bundle—it's a dry measure in the old in the Old Testament times—and it was any bundle of wheat or barley or anything that was large enough that you had to bundle it. That would be a sheaf, and it had an exact amount. And it was what they used to measure their dry goods. This is where we are right now, the counting of the Omer. All the major festivals of the Old Testament, of the ancient world, started out as agricultural festivals. When the Israelites left Egypt that had a river that could be irrigated and could be you know, used repeatedly and, and with, with certainty, to irrigate their crops, they end up in Canaan, where there are no rivers, no major lakes or rivers that can irrigate their crops. They're dependent upon the rains. They had two major rains, and they still do to this day. The early rains, which they call the Yore, which fell in late October and November in the in the fall, and then they had the late rains, the Melkosh, that that fell in the spring in March. And so what they would do is when the early rains fell and broke up the soil and loosened it, they would plant their crops. The barley and the wheat were their staples. And then by the late rains, it was time for the barley to be harvested, which was harvested first in the springtime, around now, in March. And the wheat took longer. It took seven weeks longer on average. And so it was harvested in early summer. And so these festivals line up on those harvest times. Pesach, Passover, Passover at the late rains, at the time of the spring barley harvest, and Shavuot at the time of the wheat harvest. And so they started out agriculturally, but they started to morph after that. They started to morph into a deeper understanding of what this all meant. But where does the counting come in? Take a look at Leviticus 23, starting in verse 15. One of the few times we read Leviticus in here, but here we go, right? You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf, Omer, of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you present a new grain offering to the Lord." So what's happening here? Starting on the second day of Pesach, which for us this year was Palm Sunday. That was, Passover started on the 27th of March. The next day, Palm Sunday, was the second day of Pesach. Observant Jews would have started their count, and they would count seven weeks of weeks, seven times seven, 49 days. Seven is the number of spiritual perfection to the Jews. So we have spiritual perfection times spiritual perfection. It is the perfecting of the people spiritually that is being symbolized here. And so on that second day of Pesach, which is an eight-day-long festival, a week-long festival, they would bring, all the farmers would bring a sheaf of barley which they had just harvested. And it would be waved by the priests in each of the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, to symbolize God's all-encompassing presence. And then the count would begin. And observant Jews would say a blessing, all in Hebrew, every night after sundown, when the when the next day started. And they would say, It is the tonight, they would say it is the fifteenth day of the counting of the Omer, which is Two weeks and one day, so they say it both ways, and they will count that every single day. It's the 15th day, it's the 16th day, all the way up to 49. And then the following day, the 50th day, in temple times when it stood, they would bring a sheaf of wheat and do the same thing. They would wave it in all the four cardinal directions. And this was their way of showing their gratitude for their harvest, showing what this was all about. Why count? Originally, it was agricultural timekeeping to know when the harvest need to be done. But it went deeper than that as they started to attach more significance to these agricultural days. Pesach also became connected with the Exodus, with the freedom, the liberation from Egypt and through the plagues of Egypt out into the desert deeper call to awareness of God's provision. These two harvests that meant life or death to the people, the success of these harvests meant life or death. And then deeper still, it was the awareness of the movement from slavery to liberation as a people. From physical liberation first to spiritual liberation and a new spiritual relationship with their God. The counting was their defining way, the structure that they used, the discipline are preparing themselves for the establishment of this new awareness to drive it deeper into their psyches as individuals and also collectively as a people. Now, the New Testament overlays on top of this structure. The followers of Jesus collectively experienced the same shape of the journey that we're talking about here as they were trying to follow Jesus through that tumultuous time at the end of his physical life. There was an initial call the shape of their journey, an initial call by Jesus, and then the decision to follow, to drop the things of their own life, to follow something completely different that they didn't even really understand. They were doing it on the strength of who Jesus was presenting himself to be. Initial call, a decision to follow, and then years of relationship physically with Jesus. And that's important. It was a physical relationship that they had with him through those years until they hit the shock and the awe and the loss at Calvary, when all of that came down, when everything that they thought they understood about who Jesus was, what their relationship was with him, ended on that cross. And then slowly the realization that he still lived, that he was risen, that the cross was not the end of their relationship with him. And then there was a period of adjustment that they had to go through, learning to live with Jesus in an altered, risen state. And it's interesting that even though there are 50 days between Easter and Pentecost, between Pesach and Shavuot, Jesus was on the earth for 40 days. There's another 40. And then he ascended. That 40 is significant. This is the period of adjustment. And then there are 10 more days between the Ascension and Pentecost, and 10 is another number that can mean integration. It can mean wholeness. It can mean completion. Because at that completed time for them, that's when they had another spiritual breakthrough and were able to go into a deeper place. This shape of the journey is what they experience both individually and, and collectively, all leading toward this breakthrough into rebirth, into a deeper spiritual awareness, that Pentecost moment. And if you remember the Pentecost moment, it's when the wind roars through the room in which they're all gathered, and the tongues as if of fire are dangled over each head. And the boldness and the ability for them to be able to express their faith, to move out despite consequences as compared to the fear that they were living in before, is remarkable. But it's that breakthrough that allows that to happen. This collective shape of their journey is a shape of our journey as well. And that's why it's important for us to take a look and see what's going on here. We are called. We are all called. We all feel the need for. We are drawn to something that is larger than us, larger than ourselves. And some of us eventually answer the call you're all here. And what do we do? We join a physical community, don't we, typically? We join a group of followers, a group of believers. We join a church. We join a fellowship. We join something. There's a physical community. And we learn the rules and we learn the belief set of that group, of that community. And we follow those rules. And we believe what they believe. And we're immersed in the culture of that group, of that community, and it becomes home for us. And then life sets in, as it always does. Something hits, it's a trauma, it's doubt, it's deconstruction is the word that we're all using now that takes place when we realize that something is not working anymore, something doesn't fit, that life has outrun the belief system, and we've gotta take a look at it all over again. And we have that Calvary moment where everything that we thought we had physically, the connection that we had, is suddenly in tatters around our feet. And what do we do now? What do we do with that? It breaks the connection that we thought we had. throws everything into doubt, everything into confusion. The certainty becomes the unknown. But if we can move through the grief of that loss, that physical loss, If we can move through in such a way that we keep moving in the direction that we thought we were taking, we can begin to see that God still lives despite the loss that we face, despite the disturbance that we now feel. And then we enter a period of adjustment. How do we live with God in this new relationship? How do we live with God in this altered perception, this altered way of looking at things? Because the trauma was so great that what we thought we believed was no longer adequate to move us through. Somehow we learned to transcend the physical community and move through into a new connection. This was exactly the shape of my journey, and I've talked with enough of you to know that it's the shape of your journey as well, in great measure. When I circled back around to Christianity in my early 30s, I joined a church, and it just felt so good to be in community again, to be part of the group again, to be looking from the inside out instead of like through a knothole in the fence from the outside in. I felt home again. But there was this underlying roiling that was going on the whole time, that something was not right. Somehow the emperor didn't have any clothes on. You can put any metaphor you want to, but I knew that there was a problem. And when all that came to a head, and I had to make another choice, I realized that everything that I had relied on physically in this community had to be laid as if on the altar of sacrifice if I wanted to move any forward. I had to be willing to let it go. And it was that point that things got difficult again. But pushing through was where I found a Jesus that I knew that I could follow for the rest of my life. But it wasn't the Jesus that they were following. And I had to leave that community and You know, eventually we ended up here, right? It was the beginning of the journey, but that was the shape of it. And it's amazing to me how that is coded right into the scriptures, both Old Testament in the nation of Israel, New Testament in the body of Jesus' followers, and in the individual lives that are preserved for us in the scripture. We see that same shape. First there is the physical liberation, then there is the spiritual liberation, if we are willing to push through. This is really what the effect is all about. This community right here, if you think about it. I don't know if you've been reading, but lately there's been a series of high-profile Christian pastors and leaders who have renounced their faith. There was just another one that I read about yesterday. It came through in one of the spiritual news magazines saying that, I can't even remember his name now, but such and so no longer calls himself a Christian. What we're about is trying to move through that exact time in your life when everything crumbles and falls at your feet and you realize you can't sign off on that anymore. But without losing Jesus, to see Jesus again as if for the first time and realize that Jesus transcends all of that, we don't have to let that go but we have to be willing to see Jesus. We have to be willing to let go what we think of Jesus in order to have Jesus for the first time. And that's a very different thing. That's what we're about. How do we make that transition from the first half of life, which is about the physical life, to the second half of life, which is about turning inward and finding the deeper meaning and purpose of our spiritual connection? How do you make that transition? And do it in such a way that you don't lose Jesus in the process. You may lose your sense of what Christianity is all about, but that's not the same thing. That's negotiating this way. That's what we're trying to do here. And liturgically, that's right where we are in the church right now as a people. We're we're set directly between Easter and Pentecost in the time of the counting, the time of the awareness building. And if you think about it, This is exactly where Nicodemus was when he came to visit Jesus by night, by stealth, because he didn't want anyone to see what he was doing. And if you take a look at John 3, starting right at verse 1, let's see how John puts it. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see this kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Talk about literal, right? Jesus answered, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, You cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. What's he trying to get across here? He's trying to get across that spiritual knowing is unlike physical knowing. It's a whole different trip. It's not rational, you're not going to be able to logic your way through it. This is why he's caught up at being born again and, and takes it so literally because he's thinking rationally. He's thinking logically. And Jesus is trying to break that connection with him. Those who are born in the spirit are like the wind. You can't see it. Don't know where it's coming from. Don't know where it's going to. You see the effect, but you can't see it. It's not the kind of knowing that you're used to. It's not the kind of knowing that you can put a rope around, have edges that you can cling on to. It's going to be something completely different. And until you are graduated into that space, it's going to elude you. There is no way that you can see this kingdom that I'm trying to bring to you. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This is the leader of the physical community of Israel. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the leading body. But he was being drawn to and called to something deeper, something that he couldn't understand, that he couldn't grasp. But he was being called by Jesus' message, by the quality of his life, by the signs that he was showing. But he does it by stealth. He's still afraid of the appearances. And he can't understand or accept Jesus' words of spiritual liberation because they're so far beyond his experience so far. He doesn't know what to do with them. He can't put them into any pigeonhole that he has prepared because he's still thinking rationally. He's still thinking through a physical knowing. And then we don't hear about Nicodemus anymore for like, what, 16 more chapters in John? He pops back in at chapter 19. But offstage, Nicodemus begins his counting. He begins his preparation. He begins counting the Omer in his own way. How do we know that? Because he eventually breaks through. Look at John 19, starting at verse 38. This is right after the crucifixion. Jesus is dead on the cross, and after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. (laughs) That's a lot of stuff. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings and with the spices, as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since a tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So here's Nicodemus off stage for 16 chapters, but suddenly reappears again from first sneaking in at night to see Jesus to the boldness and the courage that he shows here at, at chapter 19, the expense that he went through to bring the spices that he brought in the quantity that he brought, the freedom to act despite the consequences to himself, his reputation, his standing, his life, his family's life. What happened to Nicodemus? What went on off stage? How did he break through? How did he count his Omer? Of course, the scripture doesn't say But we know the collective shape of the journey. We know the pattern that we've seen throughout the Old and New Testaments. The means that we use to attain anything we want must match the ends we seek. The means we use must match the ends we seek. If we say that we are after oneness and unity, then we need to be practicing oneness and unity. We're not going to get there through division. Jesus said this. It was obvious you know you're not going to get olives from fig trees like breeds like Nicodemus had to start acting as if the things that Jesus said were already true he had to start living as if it doesn't say that but that's the only way that we get anywhere this is the perfect definition of faith faith is action biblically It's not what we think, it's what we do. And acting as if what we say we believe is true is the definition of faith. Moving in a direction, even if there's no evidence for it, moving in a direction that looks risky to us, that's fraught with consequences, but going because we know it's the right thing to do, going because we say we believe that it's the right direction to go. He began living as if what Jesus said was true, even without the evidence that he was looking for rationally he started acting like the wind, and just showing up and blowing through. And it became true for him in the doing, in the living, in the relationships that were being redefined for him before his eyes, as he showed up with a different intent, with a different way of doing. And he experienced the second birth. He experienced the breakthrough into a new spiritual and non-rational relationship with his God. Answering this call, entering into community, into a tribe, that begins the process. But it only just begins the process. Because when that emotional lift we get from the physical connection wears off, when the trauma hits, as it always will, everything changes. But if we remain... If we keep living and acting as if, then we begin the adjustment into a new spiritual relationship, a new way of connecting. We learn to live without the certainty of the group, which is what we're after, which is what gives us the emotional lift to start with. But we learn to live without that certainty and with a new humility, a new interdependence, a new vulnerability. That changes everything. And if we will do that for seven weeks of seven, for this whatever period of time it is that takes us to completion, we can break through into new awareness. Aligning our values with God's values is what's actually going on here. At this point, we're graduating from merely following rules. You can't follow rules into the kingdom. It's not possible. Following rules is part of the spiritual liberation, this physical liberation, but the spiritual liberation graduates us from mere obedience into actually taking pleasure in what God takes pleasure in. And as we've said so many times, the Aramaic word for will, Sabyana, doesn't mean will the way we think of it. It means pleasure, it means delight, it means desire, it means deepest purpose. When our deepest purpose becomes God's deepest purpose, How in the world are we really obeying anymore? We're doing whatever the heck we want to do. It just always looks like God. It's a completely different way of choosing, of deciding, of living, of relating that just flows out of us when we have connected in such a way. And wouldn't it be great if it really was only 49 days? I would like that. But it's not. It takes as long as it takes But when we persevere, when we continue to act in faith as if we will get there. The 49 days is compressed symbolically in the scripture, but life is a lot messier than that and it's gonna take longer. But the scripture is showing us the shape of the journey. This is what it looks like. The call to the physical community is first. The move to Calvary with the loss and the shock the counting, the adjustment, the preparation to the final spiritual rebirth that opens up this whole different way of connecting. Nicodemus, all of Jesus' followers, had to navigate, had to negotiate this path, this process, this journey. And we're going to have to do it too. This is what the scripture is showing us. This is what the liturgical Cycle is showing us about the shape of the journey if we can follow it. And Calvary is the fulcrum. Calvary is the balance point of all of this. It's the threshold. It's that liminal space that we always talk about between these two liberations, between these two births, the physical and the spiritual. And the truth of the matter is, the way to Pentecost always begins at Calvary. That's what lays the ground for us to get to the spiritual rebirth, this breakthrough. Breaking down the physical forms, breaking down our attachment to certainty begins the process of realizing that our values and our priorities are absolutely changing. Moving into pure spirit, moving into being able to see God in all of these seemingly insignificant places in our lives and each moment and each face, being able to see church, being able to see community, being able to see love everywhere we look, even in the dead letter office. If we want to be the kind of person that can absolutely see what love requires for a brokenhearted four-year-old girl and be moved to take the actions to make that connection to know the right words to say, to know how to put the package together, that it's going to have the greatest healing properties. This is the shape of our journey. And if we're willing to go through it, if we're willing to maintain living as if, even when the storm hits, on the other end of it is a person who looks like God, looks like Jesus, and that's what Jesus is trying to offer us. Let's pray. Father, every time that we move into the scriptures, it's another chance to be absolutely amazed. Amazed at the depth. Amazed at the audacity. Amazed at the way, the understanding of this life, how it all fits together to be able to put it into story, to be able to put it into song in such a way that four to 6,000 years later, it still sings to us. It can still inform us, and it can still move us along our journeys. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for those who have gone before us, who are showing us the way still. Help us to be willing to read into whatever they put in, to be open, to be shocked and moved into new directions, to have the desire that trumps the fear and allows us to be able to move forward as if these things were true. But thank you, Father. Thank you for your constancy and your love. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Would you all stand?